0: father's day as we uh, conclude this series that we've been in called a second opinion We've really been looking to the letter of a first century physician named Luke. It's a letter he wrote to a guy named Theophilus. Nobody knows who Theophilus was for certain. But Luke says right in the beginning, I'm writing you this because I want to convince you about Jesus. You've heard a lot of things, Theophilus, about him. I've gone out. Luke essentially said, I've gone out and I've collected these stories. And now I've put them in one place for you because I want you to see. I want you to take, take a second look at Jesus. Jesus. And this week, what I want to talk to you about is taking a second look at what this doctor prescribes that we need from our Father. And this Father's Day, I think I can convince you, without too much of a stretch, that our sons and daughters need the same thing from us, at least us dads in the audience. Jesus, as many of you know, lived about 33 years um, on this earth. Uh, You know the story. He was arrested. He was tried. He was crucified. On the third day, he rose again from the dead. And uh, unlike the creed that we're so familiar with, he did not immediately go and he was not immediately taken into heaven. Instead, what the Bible tells us, what Luke looked into and told Theophilus about was Jesus's post-resurrection state. You know, Jesus didn't just come alive and go to heaven. Jesus hung around for a while. At one point, Paul, who writes most of the New Testament, he says, listen, I can prove to you that Jesus is risen from the dead. There's hundreds of us, 500 at one time that saw him. Go ask anybody. They all saw him there. He, he was alive. Paul offers that as a, a proof of Jesus overcoming the grave. But, but here's reality. If a dead man coming back to life seems a bit much to buy into... I mean, if this is the part of the, of the story of Jesus where you kind of get a little cynical and you check out a little bit, I mean, maybe you say, you, you, you're here this morning, and you like Jesus, you cling to his teachings, uh, his moral philosophy is something that you would agree with, but you stragg- struggle with the veracity of his resurrection, here's what I need you to know. You are a pagan. No, that's not what I'm <laughs> Here's what I need you to know you're just like his closest friends. They have a hard time believing it too. I mean, they had seen the grave cloth. They knew about the promises. But they needed something more. As Luke wraps up his letter, he shares two stories about this post-grave Jesus. The first is that he comes to two men on a road to a town called Emmaus. and, and, And Luke talks about how at first they didn't recognize him, but then, then this Jesus started to share with them the story of beginning with Moses and going through all the prophets of who he was, why he had to die, how his life, his death and resurrection would pave the way back to God through the forgiveness of sins. This is what we're going to celebrate next week. This is why you want to be identified with just this Jesus found in him. But then Luke immediately goes to this next story. I never thought about it this way until this week. And it's really been, for me as a dad, it's been pretty inspirational for me. um, And it's helped me to reflect on my own parenting. Here's one of the last things that Luke says as proof to Theophilus about Jesus. Jesus leaves the two men on the road. And the next time we see him, uh, in Luke 24, chapter, uh, chapter 24, verse 36, it says this. Jesus he himself stood among them. He comes into the room with his disciples. He just shows up. And so Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. They were startled and frightened. That has to be the understatement of all scripture, right? They're, they're startled and frightened. Thinking, what would, they, what would you think? That's what I love about the Bible. It's like, it's just very real. Thinking they saw a ghost. He said to them, Why are you troubled, Why are you troubled, and why do doubts rise in your minds? I love this. Why are we troubled? Why do doubts arise in our minds? Is that a rhetorical question, Jesus? Why are we troubled? Well, maybe we're troubled, Jesus, because everything we had been investing our lives in in you remember the whole Jesus, remember that whole leave your mother and father thing? Well I did we we did that Jesus remember the whole you know dropping our nets and, and following after you remember that Jesus our careers and all those things? Yeah remember that why are we troubled because this has not gone the way we thought it was gonna go we thought we were going to follow the Messiah, the Savior. Remember, Jesus, we used to argue over who was going to be you know, next to you when you were ruling, who was going to be important. That's what we thought we had coming for us, seats of honor. And now, Jesus, we're on the run. We're in hiding. I, we're just hoping not to get scooped up on the streets as being rebel rousers. Jesus, we're hoping not to meet the end you did. I'm just hoping not to get on a cross. I sold my fishing net. I left my home. My mother's not talking to me anymore. And now I'm scared to death. And you want to know why I'm troubled. Why do doubts raise in my mind? Doubts? Oh, well, let's see. It could be that I saw you die. It could be because you didn't come through the way I thought you were going to come through. You didn't overthrow Rome. You didn't lead any great resistance. Why do I have doubts? Maybe it's because you were crucified like a common criminal. You went to the grave quite embarrassingly and quite meekly. I mean, if we're honest... Jesus. At least the disciples, you would think, would have to say, if we're honest, not only do we doubt you, we've started to doubt ourselves a little bit and our futures and our chances and what's going to happen to us. How's that for a place to start, Jesus? You know, Jesus had a pretty famous disciple by the name of Thomas. Thomas has, for over the last 2,000 years, become famous for one character trait. Does anybody know what it is? How much does it stink to be Thomas? (laughs) One screw-up 2,000 years of a nickname, right? But to be fair to Thomas, it wasn't just him. They all doubted. They were all troubled. And when I read this story, it makes me feel a little bit better about myself. Because in a fallen and scary world, where my job seems insecure sometimes, where where the mole on my back might be changing colors, where my kids aren't always hanging out with the right people, where rogue regimes uh, flaunt nuclear weapons, where people that I love and care about just seem to be dying, and as I get older, it seems to be happening at incremental rates where love keeps being lost, You're, you're darn right I'm troubled. And you're darn right. I mean, sometimes I wonder... We, just like the 12, all of us, we all have a little Thomas in us. And to this assembly of doubters, Jesus walks in the room, and he's like, you know, you get Jesus is walking in and going, well, what's up? Why are you guys, We afraid? Why, why are you so scared? Why do you doubt? And so how is he going to prove himself? How is he going to prove who he is, his identity? This is what Jesus says. He says, Look. Look at my hands, look at my feet. It it is I, myself. And then he says, Touch me and see. A ghost doesn't have flesh and bones, as you see that I have. And then when he said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they still did not believe it, they still didn't believe it. Because of joy and amazement, he asked them, All right, well, do you have something to eat? And they gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it, and he ate it, In their presence. Here's what you need to understand about your father in heaven and about Jesus with his disciples. He did not simply leave some neat folded burial clothes behind as a clue to his whereabouts, hoping we'd figure it out. Jesus instead comes to the doubters, to the scared, into a world which seems set against them... And he says, look, no, no, I understand, you don't believe, I get it, but so here's what I want you to do. I'm not just going to be a distant father in heaven to you, I'm going to be present with you. Come here, come, see, look, touch. Shows them his hands and his feet, he eats with them, he shares a meal with them, he's in their presence. The scripture says, Jesus comes not as a ghost. See, that would be, a, that would be just a cute religious story. But hard to believe. Yeah, ghosts don't eat fish dinners. There's a story I heard years ago. And whenever I, I read this, this stuff at the end about how the disciples, all of them were just struggling with doubt, and then Jesus shows up. Anne Lamott recounted it. it. It goes like this. late one stormy night, there was a small voice heard from the bedroom across the hall. Mommy, I'm scared. Well, the mom responded sympathetically, honey, don't be afraid. I'm right across the hall. And so after a short time, with thunder snapping in the distance, the little voice rose again, I'm still scared. Well, Mom replied, you don't need to be afraid. Close your eyes. You can pray. And remember that Jesus is always with you. Well, the next time the pause was a little longer. But the voice returned along with the little child standing next to her bed. Mommy, can I get in bed with you and Daddy? Well, the mom was just about to lose her patience when her little boy caught her eyes and said, Mommy, I know that Jesus is always with me. But right now, I need Jesus with skin on. And so do you. And so did they. See, Jesus knows this. Jesus is not a ghost. Jesus is God with skin on. And in their presence, he says, come here. I, I Draw close. Look. Look at me. L- let me show you. You can touch. Come and touch. Let's eat together. Because the idea of a resurrected but ghost God was not going to be enough. And so Jesus comes to show us a God with scars and a God with skin. As I thought about this little boy and his need for Jesus with skin on, and I thought about the disciples and their need, not for a ghost God, but for a God with skin on that just simply mere, merely holding the position of God, the authority of God, the power of God, that was not enough for his children. They needed his presence to look and to touch and to see. This Father's Day, I could not help think but think about my own children and about your children and our kids, If maybe just like God's kids, if they don't need that same exact thing from every father in the room. See, Dad... Your kids need a father that is not known by his position, that's not respected merely because of his authority, that's not loved simply out of fear. Dads, your kids don't need you to just be a breadwinner and a tuition payer. Your kids need what God showed us we all need. Your kids need a father with skin on him. In a world that is incrementally scary and troubling, ran across this statistic. It's actually fascinating. In 2013, the American Psychological Association noted that American teenagers, these are your kids, my kids, American teenagers are experiencing stress levels equal to those of adults, and for the first time during their school year when they're in school, American youth experienced more daily stress than adults. Your kids are under more stress than you and I are. And Jesus walks in and goes, why, why are you so afraid? Why, what, why don't you believe? See, this is incrementally true in the communities our kids are growing up in. The stress that we're putting them under, I do it to mine. Oh, you've got to achieve, you've got to get the right school, you got to get the right grades, you've got to get the right, right place. Communities like ours, where just this little week, a 12-year-old little girl took her life because of bullying. The woman in the first service knew that little girl. Your sons and your daughters, they don't need the idea of a dad in their lives. They need a father with skin on. What does that look like? What does it look like as as a man to not just merely occupy the position of being a father? What do your kids need in a world that's gone crazy and has put them under so much stress? Here's what I want to do. I want to show you what Jesus did what God thought that the disciples would need that would help them to overcome their doubts and fears. And so Jesus walks in the room and what is the first thing he says to them? Well, this is what a father with skin on would look like. He walks in and he says, look. Jesus walks in and he says, look at me. Dads, your kids don't merely need your best advice or your sound teaching. Here's what your kids need. They need to be able to look at your life. I don't like this. I wish this were, oh, dear God, I wish this were not true. Your kids, they need to be able to look at your life and the way you live. Do as I say and not as I do. That is not a real parenting strategy not sure if you're aware of it. I've raised four kids now. Here's what I can tell you. I've got 25 years into this at this point. Um, If you're younger, if you have younger kids, really listen to this. If you're my age, here's a good chance to not screw up your grandkids. Um, The place where I worry about my kids, the the things that I see in their lives, the things in them that I wish were different, um, don't exist because I did not warn them about them. The things that they do that give me the most worry, pause, or agitent exist, you know why? Because they saw me doing them. The truth is, they often don't wind up doing what I said. They often wind up doing what I did. There is a simple principle at work, men. Kids do what their fathers do. I know it's not. it's not... 100%, you know, uh, one-to-one, it's not perfectly explicit, I get that we can overcome stuff our dads did wrong, all of us are trying to do that, right, I have a, I have a great dad, and I'm going to go spend time with him, I mean, I, and he, my kids know, he was a wonderful father to me, and, and he prioritized us and all the rest. And but my dad screwed up things, and so I'm trying to fix some of those things, I'm trying to overcome some of it, but, but at deep levels... Kids do what dads do, not just what dads say. Let me give you a couple of quick examples, ones that aren't even all that serious, but I think you'll get the implication of it. A typical problem, maybe the biggest problem I know in men. We are angry people. Men are angry. I know you're angry. Why? I've cut a few of you off on Route 80. I've seen. Right. I've seen what happens to that finger when Pastor John pulls up next to you, right? (laughs) Oh! We're angry. And see, if you're constantly flying off the handle, if you're constantly losing your temper, if you're cursing like a sailor at home, guess what your sons and daughters are doing in the locker room at school? You can tell them all you want oh, don't curse! You can wash your mouths out with soap when they do it at home. But what dad does, they do, and it will come out of them when you are not around. This week, I just saw a three-year-old dropping the F-bomb like it was nothing. Three years old. Now, if his father walked in the room, do you think he would have been dropping it? No. Where do you think he learned it? I'll give you another one, okay? This one worries me. Because I've got two sons and two daughters. Dads, as you love your wives, as you treat them, as you value them, your sons will likely do the same. And perhaps even scarier for some of us, your daughters will expect and allow the same. If church is a mom thing, if it's her duty, if following Jesus only happens on Sundays between 9.30 and 11, guess what is going to happen in the homes of your children? Guess what is going to be, be your legacy in the, in the homes of your grandchildren? Now look, I, this is how Jesus put it. Jesus had a pretty good dad. I don't know if you're aware. Uh, John chapter, uh, one of the, it's out of John. Jesus said to them, <laughs> Maggie and I had a back and forth last night. She corrected one. Anyway, out of John, Jesus said this Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of His own accord, but only what He sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, the Son does likewise. And so, Jesus, the scripture says if you want to understand who God is, you simply need to look at Jesus. Whatever the father does, the son does likewise. You can tell them all all you want. Your kids are watching. How do you love? What do you do? How do you spend your time? What is important to you? Here's where we want to go. I'm not there yet with my kids. I mean, I want to be better. But the goal would be to get to the place where Paul, who wrote most of the New Testament, is when he was trying to explain to the church in Corinth how they should live. This is what he said. This is pretty good if you can get there, dads. Follow my example as I follow the example of Christ. So you don't have to just listen to what I'm writing to you. You can follow what I'm doing. Do what I do because I'm following him. It's not okay anymore to say, don't, oh, don't be like me. You don't want to be like your old man. I know we do that stuff. But as dads, we got to take responsibility not just for what we say to them, but how we live before them. What we say, how we say it, what we do, how we live, where we go, what we watch, how we spend our time, how we love, because they're watching you please make it a point to, st- to stop telling them not to do what you do and prioritize a concepts where, where you can get to them, where you can say, kids, I want you to follow Jesus like I am here. I want you to love your mother the way you see me loving your mother. I want you, I want you to see how I, I, I try to steer clear of certain things in life because I understand that what they would do to my heart. Please, 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 please think about what they're seeing when they watch you, not just what they're hearing when they listen to you. Second thing Jesus does when he walks in, second thing a father with skin on, not one just occupying the role of dad, one that wants to actually come in and quell the fears, is this, Jesus walks in and he says, after he says, I want you you to look at me, he says, I want you to touch me. It wasn't enough for Jesus to keep the disciples at a distance. He says, come, it's all right, touch me. And this speaks about our our, our kids' need for intimacy with their dads. And as men, I know we're not good at this. It was really easy to cuddle my kids. You know, Caleb's 18, he was wrestling at Virginia Tech. That cuddling thing gets awkward, you know? I mean, and then he started punching me and stuff when I did that. 19 gonna punch me again. See, here's, here's the deal. Your kids, I know they're never gonna say this, but the importance of intimacy and touch between a father and, and, and his kids cannot be overstated. This is easy when they're young, harder when they're not. Guys, uh, I came across this week, I think you'll like this, every time you cuddle with your kids, skin-to-skin contact is created and when that happens, there's a chemical known as oxytocin and it's released in your children's bodies. It's often referred to as the attachment chemical because it's vital in relationship building. My niece had a baby yesterday and, and, and we got sent the classic first picture. What's the picture? Skin on skin, baby skin on mother skin, right? Why? Because they're trying to get the attachment chemicals flowing. The problem is you don't often see the same thing happening between the dad and the child. But the dad connection has proven to be just as important. There was a journal called Biological Psychiatry, and explains, this is really interesting, okay, that during times of distress, when a baby is scared, it clings to its mother. While bursts of energy and playfulness often lead them to cling to their father. The reason behind the different mother-father scenarios is this, because fathers, quote, are the natural playmates, and mothers are the natural stress busters for kids. This is directly reflected in the oxytocin levels corresponding to each activity performed by both parents. So, how do dads receive the type of bonding needed to create parenting relationships with children? The easiest answer is this, you have to maintain physical relationships with your children. Skin-to-skin contact. My dad, you know, my dad didn't know any of this stuff, right? And so my dad stopped kissing me before I can remember him kissing me. Um, and he started kissing me about two years ago. <laughs> That's not bad, right? Most of you would say you've never been kissed by your father. And so I, I try to hug my kids a lot. I try to kiss them a lot. So You know, some of you, I have, I have a close relationship with my kids. It's not perfect, but, but it's pretty good. And some of you have commented, uh, Courtney's my oldest, she's 25, and some of you have said, boy, you, you and Courtney are really close, and I was thinking about that this week. Um, Courtney, when she was a little kid, boy, ooh, that kid was strong-willed. Um, and so uh, she would not go to bed unless Daddy went to bed with her. And so this is not a joke. You can probably ask Joan this, right? For the first three years of her life, maybe, I slept with Courtney. I fell asleep in that kid's bed, face-to-face, hand-to-hand, <laughs> for three years, um, and, every, you know, she'd be going to bed at 8. I'd be waking up in there at 10, exhausted, you know, and then going into my own bed. But it created this bond. I, I, it's so important, this intimacy level with your kids. With my, with my kids, when they were young, I used to do best position. I'd come, they'd, you know, I'd lay down on the ground, and I'd say, all right, get on me. And all of you, you know, get your best position, and I'm going to count to three. And when I count to three, then I'm going to get up. And if you don't hold me down, you're, you're dead. And so... <laughs> You know, they would get on me, and I mean, they would try everything. They would get weights, strings, anything they could, right? Um, and, uh, man, I, I would count to one, you know, one. one I mean, they would have strategy meetings before this best position game, right? And right up until last week, I was able to kill those kids, but, but we did it all the time. John Ortberg tells a story about how, how he played a, a game with his dad. Um, every day at 5 o'clock, they would listen for the door and play this game called Daddy's Home. And so they wait to hear their dad come in the door, and they would take running, flying leaps into their dad's arms every night and yell, Daddy's home. He said, we played the games for years, and then one day my dad said to me, we can't play the game anymore. He said, our days of playing the game are over. He said, I was pretty sad. I didn't want to stop playing the game. And I said to my father, Dad, why do we have to stop? And he said, well, I'm getting older. For one thing, I'm not as young as I used to be. And he said, for another thing, my back is bothering me a little bit. And I I wouldn't want to drop any of you kids. You're so important to me. My back's not what it used to be. And he said, for another thing, you're 17 years old now. And and sooner or later, that day comes. I know this is hard for us, these, these intimate level talks. It's hard for our kids. It's easy when they're little. I know. I know your dad probably didn't do well here. I get that. I know it feels awkward, but it's just so key. Your kids, even though they might not say say it, they need you in this heart relationship so much. They need to know your heart. They need to know that you're connected to them. That you're not just dad that's bringing home a paycheck. That you're not just ghost dad, but intimate dad. Touch me. Relate to me. Know me. Gentlemen, hug your daughters today. Men. I'm going to freak some of you out. Here's what I want you to do. When your kid leaves the house today because maybe he's a little older when he's going up to bed, give them a kiss. Just tell him it was homework from stupid Pastor John you had to do. If it's awkward, just say, oh, you know, I got to do this. (laughs) Here's how Jesus spoke about the intimacy he had with his dad. He, he, He said in John again, he said, I and the Father are one. Like, we're as close as it gets. You want to know the confidence he had in his father's love? As the Father has loved me, Jesus says, so I have loved you. Now remain in my love. And so, if you want to help your kids to not be afraid, not go into hiding, to be able to deal with the world that they're in, to, to not be discouraged, if you want to enter into their lives, you need to tell them, look at me, watch what I'm doing. Don't just listen to my words, watch what I'm doing. And, and you need to, get, to create a heart-level intimacy with them. And some of the ways you can do that is simply by, by, through touch. But here's the third thing I want you to know. Uh, Jesus, after he said, uh, Look at me and touch me, then he, the scripture says he showed them. And this speaks to intentional training. See, we're better at this. I took them all out at one point in their lives. I don't know why I thought this would work. I took them all out and showed them how to change a tire. Now, unless you change a tire regularly, you're going to forget five minutes after you change that tire. But, you know, as dads, sometimes we're better at this intentional training. Intimacy might be the hardest thing for us. Training might be the easiest. But here's the one thing that you learn about training up a child in the way you should go. Training a child takes a lot of time, a lot of work, and a lot of energy. And if there's one thing you and I don't have a lot of, it's time and energy. You know know why? Because we apply almost all of it to our other work. Here's Here's what Paul said. When he wrote to a church in Ephesus about dads, he said, fathers, look, don't provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and the instruction of the Lord. See, Paul, as crazy as it might sound, he had an assumption that fathers were going to be intimately involved. It would be a necessity to have them involved in raising kids. So when he talks about the process of shaping a child's life, he, he naturally addresses fathers. In our culture, fathers almost always think of themselves as spectators in child raising. But it has not been this way historically. You need to know that. 200 years ago, when child raising manuals were written, generally they were addressed to fathers. 200 years ago in American society, if a couple went through a divorce, custody of the children almost always went to the father. Because it was an assumption that the dad was intimately involved in the raising of the kids. They were going to be passing along life skills that would enable their kids to live and function outside of the home. They were involved in the preparation for marriage and very often in the selection of of a partner. They were involved in the moral and the religious education of the children. It wasn't all just handed over to mom like so often, guys, if I'm honest, so often we've done. If you're a father, you have unique gifts. God didn't make you to be a pinch hitter. You're not just around in case mom has to go away, you're not optional equipment. Don't be a passive observer as these years go by. If you do not train up your children, okay, a couple things. I, I just got to share two things from my own life, the things where I've screwed up and, and, and areas I just want to warn you about. The first is, is this. Um, these years go really quick. I mean like quick. Uh, my oldest is 24. My youngest is, uh, is 14. And so there's about a 10-year gap between, ah, I'm missing if she's 15. I know I'm getting it all wrong, but you know what I mean. There's a 10-year gap, right? There's nine and a half now. That's why I was trying to make it show you that it's 10, but it's about a 10-year gap. So I remember when Courtney was old enough that I was thinking we should start family devotions and I should train these children up in the way they should go. But I thought to myself two things. Well, that's a lot of work. And then I thought, you know what? Caroline's too young to really appreciate this. Caleb's a little young to appreciate this. You know what I'll do? I'll just wait until they're old enough and we can all do it together. Well, Courtney's. a 24 and she's a full-time teacher and John lives in Manhattan. Caleb's a freshman at Virginia Tech and Caroline's 14. You know how many family devotions we've had? It goes by really fast. Second, this is true. If, if you, Dad, if you do not train up a child in the way it should go, he should go, here's what I know from 25 years of parenting. If you do not do that, Someone will very gladly jump in and do it for you. But they will train them in the way they would like for them to go. See, in terms of, uh, of what Jesus is saying here, in, in terms of this show concept, you would never approach your savings, your planning, your career, heck, even your lawn, the way we approach parenting, dads. I mean, we plan and train and work on those things. We're intentional about their success. We don't just look out the window and hope the lawn's going to be okay. What do you want them to know? What do they need to be trained in? Come up with a plan and do it. Time is ticking. Lastly, there's this. If, If you're not going to be a ghost dad, Jesus did not want to be a ghost God. If you don't want to be a ghost dad, here's the last thing that Jesus knew that they needed. They needed his presence. His presence. Scripture says that he was present with them when they ate a meal together. I mean, if you want to look at the value of a family dinner, you can leave it at that, right? One writer said this: Ask yourself who, who you are, and hold that thought for a good long while, and then ask, what is it that you want your children to be, and what are you willing to do them to what are you willing to do to help them achieve that? Woody Allen once said, 80% of life is just showing up. Much of being a parent is just showing up and being there for them when they need you and even when they don't. He would go on to say, over the years I've counseled many parents about how to raise their children. One reoccurring issue is time. How much to devote and how, how much to devote. Many fathers have told me they don't have enough time to spend with their kids. So since they don't have enough time to spend with their kids, they're going to try for what kind of time, people? Quality time. That's good as far as it goes, the writer said, but it's, not an ex- but, but, but it's an excuse and a mistake. Quality time with children is nice, but the truth is that children do not want quality time. They just want time and lots of it. You know what the reality of the situation is? Uh, you wonder why, why our culture is where it is. And look, I'm not like, going to be beating some cultural warrior path up here, but this is interesting to me. The average number of minutes a father spends talking to his children, seven minutes a day. You cannot shape and form and train your children in seven minutes a day. Here's the reality as God shows us what it is to be a good father. God did not merely leave the Ten Commandments behind and disappear. He didn't merely say, this is how you should live. John chapter 1 says this, The Word, God, became flesh, and he made his dwelling among us, another version says, and he moved into the neighborhood. His presence, dads, hear this, because I know, I know how busy you are. I know the calls, I know, I know. I mean, trust me, I know. But, but God's presence with his people came at a great cost and a heavy price, and he gave up much in order to simply be with us. Dads, do you hear that? His presence came at quite a price. He gave up much in order to simply be with us. So the question is, what cost might you need to bear that you have been unwilling to bear just to ensure your presence? And lastly, there's this. To Thomas and to the disciples. There was one thing that made Jesus less of a ghost and more of a God with skin on. It was Jesus' scars. He shows them all look, touch, see. His hands, his feet, his side. As the band comes up, I, I want you to understand this. You may have never thought about it before, but it really is profound. The scripture teaches that one day, each and every one of us that have come to a saving faith in Jesus, all of us are going to get new bodies, to which I say, amen. These rapidly breaking down, there's something going on back here, you'll see it in the water next week. These balding things, we're going to be freed of these, and we're going to be getting these new immortal bodies that are going to be free from the ravages of sin, all of us in the heavenly realm, all of us when we get to the kingdom that day are going to have new heavenly bodies. Everybody except one. You know who won't? Jesus. Because the scripture makes it clear that Jesus bears his scars. The one he took for you, the ones he took for you, he bears them into eternity. In his resurrected state, his hands, his feet, his side, they still bear marks. Why? Some theologians have postulated that the wounds of Christ are for his glory. They're they're signs of his love for us and of his power. Others say that Jesus kept his scars not from an inability to heal them, but to wear them as an everlasting trophy of his victory. Augustine put it this way. He said, perhaps in the kingdom we shall see on the bodies of the martyrs the traces of the wounds which they bore for Christ's name, because it won't be a deformity, but, but a dignity. There'll be a dignity in them. And a certain kind of beauty will shine in them. Personally, I like the, the story I found in Sojourner's magazine about a South African man and his dream. In it, he died and he went to heaven when he saw Jesus. He knew it was Jesus, just like the disciples, because of the scars on his hands and his feet and his side. And so he looked at Jesus and he said, if this is heaven and we're all supposed to have glorious, eternal resurrection bodies, why does your body still bear the scars of the crucifixion? Jesus didn't give him a direct answer. Instead, he asked the man in return. And where are your scars? Was there nothing and no one worth fighting for? Everybody, as we get ready to to potentially cross the line of faith next week publicly, I want you to understand something, that Jesus, even now, Bears the weight of his love and the significance of your worth on his hand and on his feet and in his side. And, Dads, on this Father's Day, I just have to conclude with asking you at what cost will you no longer be ghost dad, but become exactly what it is that your kids need? Not a breadwinner, not an authoritarian figure but a father with skin.